2006, October 13th, lecture number 17 on the shoulders of giants, Newton's synthesis. We'll begin in just a moment. So in the last, this week, the main theme has been, how did we come to understand why the planets move the way they do? And we're setting the stage now for the modern explanation of why the planets move physically the way they do. Why are there Kepler's three laws? But to do that, we have to meet the last person who made the main contributions to solving this age-old problem of the motion of the heavens, and that's Sir Isaac Newton. So today's lecture is on the Newtonian synthesis. What Newton not only did was a vastly creative work, but he also synthesized the vast, vast ferment of knowledge that was coming forward from people like Copernicus and Kepler and Tycho and Galileo, and he brought it together and summarized it into three fundamental laws of motion that completely revolutionized our way, not only of looking at the heavens, but of looking at the whole interaction between man and matter and everything else in the world. In fact, today's key ideas are unusual because I'm going to emphasize in the key ideas Newton's three laws of motion that came out of this work. The first law of motion states that objects in motion remain in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. Here Newton is now going to bring forward what the problem was with the Aristotelian view of the world. This notion of things coming to rest was to show that that was an incorrect notion. It was based on an incorrect notion because of one's more or less common sense view of the world that in fact objects, if you set them in motion, are going to remain in motion unless something acts upon them. And what acts upon them is a force. But Newton didn't stop there. He then brought his second law of motion, which says that acceleration is proportional to the force and inversely proportional to the mass, which can be expressed mathematically as force is equal to mass times acceleration. What Newton did for the first time was to quantify physically what is meant by a force. And he said forces are those things that produce accelerations on masses. We'll see what that means here in just a second. Having now established what motion is about and defined the idea of a force, he then came up with the most unexpected of his laws. The third law of motion is that to every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. That's the sing-song way of putting it. A better way of putting it is that forces always come in equal and opposing pairs. So the first law tells us what motion is. The second law tells us what forces are and how they change motion. And the third law tells us how forces interact. And all three of these together are sufficient to explain just about everything in terms of basic, simple, classical mechanics. And that includes, as we're going to see in lectures that will largely be the subject of next week, not only the motions of planets through the heavens, but something as simple as the fall of an apple into the course of gravity. Isaac Newton was born in the generation after Galileo. In fact, he was born on Christmas Day of the same year that Galileo died in 1642. He was born in rural England in a place called Woolsthorpe. His mother was a widow. His father had died before he was born. And he re she remarried shortly after he was born. He was kind of then a, something of an unwanted child. In fact, she sent the young Isaac away to be raised by, his, by her mother. Um, his mother, maternal grandmother basically raised Newton as kind of a single child. As a consequence, he sort of always felt kind of abandoned in his life. We can psychoanalyze to our heart's content, but certainly his own writings and those of his contemporaries found that he was rather a solitary boy. He came from this in intermediate class in England that would be, guess, be called gentleman farmers, and Newton was most unsuited to becoming a gentleman farmer. He was far more brilliant than that. He went to the schools of the day, learned mathematics, and in fact, grew up as a very quiet, irascible, and very solitary man. He never married. 
He never had many close friends in his lifetime. And he was always very, very fearful that people would steal something from him. A modern psychologist would say that he felt like his mother was stolen from him by her new husband. We can be Freud to our heart's content. But this was to color a lot of Newton's life and his work. It basically slowed down his publication and made him extremely defensive of his ideas for fear people would steal it from him. He managed, however, to get into Cambridge University. At the time, Cambridge University was a place where you mainly trained people who were bound for the ministry. In this case now, by the year 1665, we are, of course, speaking of the Anglican ministry because the Protestant Reformation had swept through England at the time of Henry VIII and it was no longer a Catholic nation, but, of course, the Church of England was, was in the rule in, in England. And he graduated from Cambridge, as pretty much everyone did, studying theology and mathematics and all of the things that one studied at Cambridge in the year 1665. To put this into sort of the proper historical context to yesterday's discussion of Galileo, Galilei, the year 1664 was the year that Pope Alexander VII published a papal bull finally getting around to stating that the Copernican view of the universe was a heretical doctrine that could not be held by the faithful. A little late. This is uh, Woolsthorpe. This is actually where Newton was born. It's preserved now today in the National Trust in England as a museum. And Newton was to go back to this place after his graduation from Cambridge. The reason why he went back to Woolsthorpe after Cambridge rather than settling down into the life of a Cambridge don, it was obvious he was so talented, he immediately graduated from Cambridge and, if you will, went on to the faculty. But the problem was, in the year 1665 and 1666, was one of the periodic visits of the bubonic plague to England, and they shut down the university and dispersed the, the students sort of a modern pandemic. For example, if pandemic flu ever, God help us, breaks out, we'll probably end up having to close this university for the time that is occurring. Much the same thing happened, but bubonic plague was obviously a whole lot nastier. So Newton went back home to Woolsthorpe out in the country and he was bored to tears. Now, most people would have just sort of sat back and sort of cooled their heels during the plague, you know, maybe done some things, pottered around the farm. Newton was a very restless intellect. During his year and a half, two-year hiatus in Woolsthorpe, he, he did a few things. Um, he invented the integral and differential calculus, the first new mathematics in a thousand years. He developed the binomial theorem, which is the fundamental basis of all modern statistics. He started fundamental work on optics, which basically swept away 2,000 years of spe speculation upon the nature of light and, in fact, laid the foundation for modern geometric optics. Those of you who wear eyeglasses, those eye or contact lenses, the principles on which those are designed are called Newtonian optics. And he also formulated the laws of motion and the laws of gravitation. Just while he was at it, he decided to wipe out the entire Aristotelian body of knowledge on physics. It's pretty good for a couple of years hanging out under the apple trees. However, in characteristic Newton form, he then figured, well, I'm done, and he packed it away. He packed it away, and it was left unpublished for what was to be another 20 years. So this tremendous body of work, which any individual achievement here would have been enough to make a person world famous, Newton did four of them and then simply shut it away in his closet. In 1669, after the, uh, the end of the plague year, at the age of 26, he returned to Cambridge and became the second Lucasian professor of mathematics at Trinity College. The Lucasian Professor of Mathematics is considered one of the greatest professorships in the world in mathematics and physics. In fact, you all probably have heard of the current holder of the Lucasian chair. It's Stephen Hawking. He settled into the kind of comfortable life of a Cambridge professor. They kind of had an instantaneous tenure system there. I rather envy them in that time. It took me a number of years to finally get tenure, but basically once you got in there, you were in there for life. 
Um, he continued fundamental work on optics. In fact, during this period, he invented a reflecting telescope, which is, in fact, the model for all modern telescopes. He carried out a variety of experiments in optics, and he began to also dabble in something he'd been dabbling in in the past, in alchemy. Now, I wish I could say that his dabblings in alchemy made fundamental discoveries that led to modern chemistry, but in fact, they did not. His studies in alchemy were, for the most part, a complete intellectual dead end, and were actually to consume him intellectually for a great deal of the rest of his life. It's one of the odd paradoxes of Newton's life, is that he did so much to bring science into the modern world, but then himself became consumed by a complete intellectual dead end. He was always unprepared for classes. He would show up without notes. He sometimes would show up and just start rambling at the board. In fact, it got so bad the students stopped showing up. One story is that one day he showed up to give his mathematics lecture. No one was there. He looked around and simply went back to his room without comment. But these ideas were whirling around in his head. He felt he'd solve them. And in the year 1684, we've come now 20 years past when he actually did most of the fundamental work on, that we've just described at home in Woolsthorpe, he entered into a conversation with a man by the name of Edmund Halley. Now, the way the story goes, Edmund Halley was a, was a scientist, an astronomer, a member of the Royal Navy, or at least more or less a member of the Royal Navy. He was famous for his surveying work, and he was a general all-around intellectual at the time. He got together with three, two other individuals regularly in the coffee houses of London, and they would discuss the philosophical problems of the day. One of the men was, of course, Edmund Halley, as I've mentioned. The other was Christopher Wren. For those of you who know something about architecture, he's the architect who helped rebuild most of London after the Great Fire. In fact, he is the architect of, of the beautiful St. Paul's Cathedral and most of the beautiful buildings at Cambridge University, considered one of the greatest architects of the period, and a man by the name of Robert Hooke, who also was a great experimental um, scientist. He was one of the people who first made scientific application of the microscope, kind of reverse telescope, and made fundamental contributions to physics. And they would sit in the coffee shop, and they would talk away about various issues. And they got into this question about Kepler's laws of motion. Why was it that a planet orbit was an ellipse with the sun at one focus, and it knew to move in such a way that a line swept out equal areas in equal times? And oh, where did this harmonic law, the square of the period, was proportional to a cubed come from? Well, Newt Halley had occasion to go into... Uh, Cambridge, and he talked, went to go see Newton, who he had known through his writings, and also they were founders of the Royal Society of London. Newton, being a fellow member, was there, and so he asked Newton offhand, so what would be the shape of, an or of, of a planet moving under the influence of a central force? And, and Newton immediately said, oh, it would be an ellipse. Well, how do you know that, how Edmund asked. And, and Newton said, I have not, not, oh, well, that's what Kepler said. He said, oh, I have computed it. Halley then wanted to know what the computation was. Newton couldn't find his papers, so he dug around for a while and got prevailed upon by Halley to reproduce the calculation. It took Newton about three years to do the production. Halley, of course, wanted to see it published because he realized how important this calculation was. He needled, harassed, yanked upon Newton, and even paid for the publication out of his own pocket. Finally, in the year 1687, managed to get it published through the Royal Society of London. The book's title is in Latin, Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Mathematica, The Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. This does not sound like a blockbuster or a bestseller. It really wasn't. However, it was a book that really does justifiably deserve to stand with such works as De Revolutionibus and with the Astronomia Noma of Kepler and with the Sidereus Nuncius of Galileo as a book that truly changed the world. 
Here's the title page for the first edition of the, of the Principia Mathematica, often referred to as the Principia in short. It was published by Isaac Newton, Trinity College, Cambridge, mathematics, prof Lucasian professor, and member of the Royal Society, is what it says there in Latin. It has the imprimatur, which is the permission to publish, but you'll notice the person who did so, it's the, basically the secretary of the Royal Society Press, is a man named S. Pepys. For those of you literature fiends out there, that is in fact Samuel Pepys, the famous uh, writer of the period, and it was published in London. And of course, a portrait of Isaac Newton from this period, from Cambridge, and a portrait of Edmund Halley. Edmund Halley is one of the great unsung heroes of astronomy and physics. He actually did far, far more than he is famous for. We mostly now know him for Halley's Comet, but if it wasn't for Edmund Halley, we might not have had Isaac Newton. What did Newton do? Well, the Percipi is one of the most important works in history because it is not only a work of creation, it is a work of synthesis. It takes a vast number of phenomena and simplifies them and distills them down, almost like in an alchemist's stove, down into a simple series of principles that allowed a vast amount of knowledge to be derived. In short, what the Principia did was it laid the foundation of modern physics. If you become a physics major and you take your first year physics courses, you learn essentially Newtonian mechanics. You learn an updated version of the contents of the Principia Mathematica. The other thing that this did is it simply swept away the last vestiges of the Aristotelian world. He did not adapt Aristotelian ideas. He did not explain Aristotelian ideas. He simply gathered them up all and threw them all away. We'll see exactly how that was. Furthermore, it marked a real change in the way in which things were done. Before, the descriptions were largely empirical. One described one the motions, one uh, preserved appearances. But what the Principia did was to show that, in fact, every single one of these phenomena were quantifiable, expressible in numbers and in mathematics, and that they were physical explanations of the nature of the world. Not just simply little geometric tricks that allowed you to get the right answer, but one could show that those answers were true from first fundamental principles. But the real achievement was to take all of the motions of the world and unify them into a single set of explanations which were expressible mathematically and with three actually deceptively simple laws. If you sit back and think about them a little bit, and I'm hoping that's part of what we'll be doing today, Newton's three laws are actually common sense correct notions of the world. They just get past some of the nasty details that kind of blind you to the reality of it. The beauty of Newton is, again, what we have is now every phenomenon can be reduced to these motions of three laws. In the Aristotelian view of the world, if I made a simple motion like, oh, my much-abused set of keys, take my keys out of my pocket and flip them across the stage, that's one class of motion. If I threw this thing across the stage, my pointer, which I'm not, this is expensive, um, it would move in a different way and bounce in a different way. The planets, the stars, all of them had their own motions. To an Aristotelian, all those motions required a separate, specific explanation. The motions of the heavens were different than the motions we saw in the sublunar realm. The motions in the heavens were eternal and unceasing, whereas motions here on Earth, well, they set into motion, but they eventually come to rest, and boy, did I just make a mess of my flashlight. Okay, so, what Newton was to show was, in fact, that view was simply wrong. That the motions in the heavens are ruled by exactly the same rules as the motions on Earth. It was a revolutionary idea. Let's see what those ideas were. 
He boiled down the laws of motion to three fundamental rules. Each one follows from the follows and follows the other, and together they make up an entire system of computation. I'm going to start by giving you the words, and the words I'm going to give you is basically an almost direct English translation from the Latin of the Principia. The first law of motion states, everybody will stay in a state of rest or uniform motion in a straight line, which I've underlined here for emphasis, unless that state is changed by forces impressed upon it. So that's Newton's statement. This is actually what we now call, not so much Newton's first law, we also call it the law of inertia. It basically expresses a common sense notion that there is a property of matter that it resists having its state of motion changed. That if I want to set something into motion, I must do something to it. And what I must do is I must impress a force upon it. So if an object is at rest, take Marvin here, set him at rest, that's what state Marvin is going to stay in unless I impress an external force on him. I give it a kick, I give it a push, I pick it up, I throw it in some way. That's a common sense notion. Furthermore, it's a property of matter, all matter. Whether you're talking about the matter in Marvin, the matter in an apple, the matter in a rock, the matter in the moon. The bigger the object is, the more it resists being moved. Let's face it, I can push Marvin around all I like. If a Buckeyes linebacker was up here and I tried to push him around in much the same way, I wouldn't get very far. I'd probably get hurt. Okay, and that's my contractual obligation for a football reference this week. <laughs> this also brings us up, but Newton took it one step further and he said, well, look, what do I mean by motion? Here he made a specific mathematical description of motion. Motion is composed of two parts. And now I'm going to use two supposedly interchangeable everyday words in a very specific way. Motion consists of two things, the speed, how fast it's going, and the direction. Where is that motion going? This is going to be the important part. For example, speed. As I sit there and throw Marvin across the room, he's moving that way with a certain speed. But if I throw him the other way, it's more or less the same speed, but it's the opposite direction. Aristotelian would have said, eh, motion is motion. But Newton said, uh, that's different. Motion in that direction is actually different from motion in the other direction. I have to not only talk about where something, how fast something is moving, but in which direction it's moving. He added direction to the idea of motion. This is vitally important to us, as we'll see in a moment. The combination of speed and direction is the thing we call velocity. Now, everyday language, we use velocity and speed interchangeably. But in physics, all in Newton, we use velocity to mean something very specific. Speed only answers one question, how fast are you going? Velocity answers two questions, how fast are you going and in what direction? For those of you who are math majors, or at least take math, velocity is a vector. It includes both magnitude and direction. So that defines what we mean by motion. Now we have to say, well, what do I mean if I change motion? Changing motion means not changing speed, it means changing velocity. Which means I'm going to now define what I mean by acceleration. In everyday world, acceleration means speed up. But acceleration more generally means any change in velocity. And that can, if I change velocity, velocity consists of two parts. So there's 
a couple of ways I can express a change in speed, change in velocity. Change in velocity means I can change the speed. I can go faster or slower. That means the object is accelerating. But it also can mean a change in direction at a constant speed. So if I'm moving this way at a constant speed, and then I very slowly turn around, and I'm now moving at a constant speed in the other direction, I'm still walking at a constant pace, but my direction is changing, my motion is changing. I have to perform an acceleration to change my direction at a constant speed. Or I can change them both. I can experience an acceleration that not only changes my speed, but changes my direction of that speed. This is a more nuanced idea than the Aristotelian idea of acceleration means faster or slower. It adds this notion of direction to it. Let's give you an example. We're talking about Newton, so of course, an apple. Any of you who come from the apple-growing country of Ohio may run into the Newtown Pippin. That's an corrupted bit. It's actually a Newton Pippin. Newton actually was an apple breeder. A falling apple is accelerating. Why is it accelerating? Because it is changing its speed. It starts out at rest and then gets faster and faster as it falls to the ground. But it's moving in the same direction. It always falls down. I have a nice Ohio example of an apple. This is a wine sap, not a Newtown Pippin. If I hold the apple here and release it, it will fall downwards. It will get faster and faster as it moves to the ground. I don't want to lose my lunch here, as it were. So it moves in this constant direction, but an ever-accelerating speed. So it is accelerating. It's getting faster and faster, but always going in the same direction. That's a simple example of an acceleration. We can all get into that. Another example is running forward and running faster and faster and faster. My speed is getting bigger, and I keep going in the same direction. This, on the other hand, is a rather unintuitive expression. This is also an acceleration. A ball attached to a string is swung around my head. It's accelerating, too, even though it's moving at a constant speed in, altogether now, uniform circular motion. There's that Aristotelian notion. Aristotle would have claimed it's unaccelerated because it isn't changing its speed, and Newton said, uh-uh, Airy. It may be keeping the same speed, but it's constantly changing direction. And in fact, I have a little example here. You may have noticed Marvin has a string. It's around his shoulders, not around his neck. I'm nice to my Marvin, mostly. I'm going to swing Marvin around. I've got a good tight grip on it. Marvin is now in uniform circular motion. Aristotle would have said it's in an unchanging, unceasing motion, and Newton says, no, no, it's moving at the same speed, but its direction is constantly changing. It's feeling an acceleration, which means it must be being influenced by a force. How do I know that? And now here's where Aristotle should have taken out a string and a rock and did it himself. Because in order to maintain this motion, I must be constantly pulling a force through the string. Therefore, if I've got a force, it must be accelerating. But it's in uniform, circular motion. Aristotle had it wrong. Uniform, circular motion is not a sign of perfection. It's a sign of a central acceleration, which means a sign of a central force. As the ball swings around or Marvin swings around, the speed is the same, but now I've drawn an arrow. The direction is constantly changing. 
the velocity changes because velocity is speed plus direction. Therefore, it is an acceleration. This ball is constantly accelerating around. All right, that defines motion. But now I want to change motion. What do I mean by changing motion? I need to have know how do I make accelerations? And that gives us the second law. Allah Newton, the size of an acceleration is directly proportional to the force applied and inversely proportional to the mass of the body. Now Newton has combined in very succinct form two common sense ideas. The bigger an object, the harder I have to push to set it into motion. And when I push an object, it moves in the direction that it is pushed. The resulting acceleration has the same direction as the applied force. Here now, acceleration includes not only magnitude, how much faster or slower you're getting, but the direction of the acceleration. It's also a vector. Force, which always was a fuzzy notion in Aristotle and Kepler and all the others, now has a specific meaning. It is that which produces accelerations, and it has a magnitude and a direction. Now, the second law of motion can be expressed mathematically as follows. I want to accelerate an object. How do I do that? I impose a force upon it. But the force is inversely proportional to the mass. What this tells me is if I have a fixed mass, as the mass gets bigger, to produce the same acceleration, I must have a bigger force in the top of the fraction here. The larger the force, the larger the acceleration for a given mass. If I have a constant force, for example, the force I'm pushing with my hands, if I walk up and push the view graph card over there with that constant force of the muscles in my hands, it will accelerate pretty good. If I, second gratuitous force reference, push against a big linebacker with that same force who may weigh about 300 pounds, he ain't going very far. Why? My force hasn't changed. What's changed is the amount of mass opposing it. It's easier to push a rock than it is to push a Mack truck. Therefore, acceleration is proportional to the force I double the force, I double the acceleration for a given mass, but inversely proportional to the mass. The bigger the mass, the more that mass resists being accelerated by my applied force. It's now the mathematization of the principle of inertia. And it's a common sense notion. The bigger something is, the harder you have to push to get it moving. We often invert this to say that force equals mass times acceleration. If I want to know what force I have to apply to accelerate a given mass, the amount of force I apply is simply the mass times acceleration. In this simple formula lies almost all of classical physics. Force, mass, and acceleration were separate ideas, and now they're brought together. They're unified. One of the thing that does is that the second law has two parts. The first is it now quantifies what we mean by a force. Forces are defined in terms of what their effects are on massive bodies. What are forces? Forces are things that produce accelerations. Furthermore, the more mass a body has, the less it can be accelerated by a given force. This is simply a reiteration of what I just said. It's the common sense notion that the bigger something is, the more force I have to push against it to accelerate it. But the second piece is more subtle and more important. Forces and accelerations have directions to them. An acceleration is in the same direction as the applied force. If I push against something, it moves in the direction that it's being pushed. Or if I pull on a rope, the thing accelerates in the direction I'm pulling. 
You say, well, that seems common sense if I've got a rope and I'm pulling it on Marvin, say, as I drag Marvin across the stage. So I put Marvin down and I pull on the rope and I drag Marvin along. But it's less obvious when I'm swinging Marvin over my head. Wait a minute. I'm pulling perpendicular to the motion. What's going on? No, I'm pulling perpendicular to the speed. I'm not pulling perpendicular to the change in direction. And that's the little nuance that made it so difficult to see that uniform motion, uniform circular motion was in fact accelerated. Let's take an example here. Let's not swing Marvin anymore. I've got another mass on a string. I've got a nice old-fashioned Buckeye donut. Stopped in there this morning. They're marvelous. Buckeye donuts are stale right out of the fryer. I don't know how they do it. <laughs> and I set the donut in motion in uniform circular motion. If I decrease the force, the speed gets a little slower. You'll notice also that the diameter of the circle gets a little smaller. Or as I speed it up, as I increase the force and then stabilize it, it swings around a lot faster, but still uniform circular motion is constantly changing direction. I put a little excess force on it, and it speeds up a little bit, but still uniform. Now, what would happen if the string were to suddenly break? Here it is, it's got uniform circular motion. Aristotle would have said, well, it's going to take off and it's going to remember its circular motion, so it will fly off in a flat arc. <laughs> when the donut breaks in half, it says, I'm going that way. Suddenly liberated of a force, Newton's first law kicks into play and says, an object in motion stays in motion in a straight line unless acted upon by an outside force. And so when the donut split in half, it broke and flew directly into the screen. In past years, I've unfortunately had it fly directly into the audience. I got lucky this year. Let's look at this now in the computer version. Donut swung around on a string in uniform, uniform circular motion. I'm pulling on a force through the donut, the, the speed is moving this way, the yellow arrow, that speed feels an acceleration. The acceleration it feels is the force divided by the mass of the donut. And further, that acceleration is in the direction of the force being pulled. These two lines here are parallel lines. What is that going to do? It's going to cause the donut to swing around the arc. It's going to deflect from the straight line path it wants to follow, all of this first law, and it's going to be curved. It's going to change direction, but at a constant speed. It swings around down here. That force now has swung it around, and it's moving that way. But now the string breaks. There's no more, more force, and the donut takes off in a straight line until it hits something, or until the acceleration of gravity t pulls it down to the ground. So acceleration can also be when you change your direction, but not your speed. And in this case, the direction of the force through the string is causing the deflection, not a speed up or slow down in this particular case. Therefore, uniform circular motion is not uniform. It's actually an example of accelerated motion. But it's accelerated motion in the influence of a central force being exerted perpendicular to its instantaneous direction of motion. Now, where have we seen something moving around the center? The motions of the planets. Now, the application to planetary motion is actually pretty obvious. As the planets circle around the sun, they are changing speed 
and they are changing direction as they orbit. That means that according to this, as they're moving along ellipses with the sun at one focus. As they come to perihelion, which is closest to the sun, they're moving fastest. They're closer to the sun, they feel a greater force. Not only do they feel a change in direction, but there's a change in speed. At aphelion, they're furthest from the force. The force is less, the acceleration is less, the speed and the change of direction is less. If the planet happened to be on a perfectly circular orbit, it always maintains the same distance from the sun. It always feels the same constant central force. And therefore, it swings around in uniform circular motion, but constantly changing direction. So all we're seeing is circular motion is just simply a special case of elliptical motion. Why does the speed and direction change? Again, it's accelerating in response to an applied force. What's the force? It's the force of gravity. We're not going to talk about gravity today. That's the topic of next week is gravity. But therein lies the secret. Why do they move that way? They are simply moving in response to a central force. That's it. Now comes the third law. It's the most subtle, but it's actually vitally important to everything that we put together. In Newton's phrasing, the third law is stated, for every force applied to a body, there is an equal and oppositely directed force exerted in response. Or put in the sing-song way, to every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. This states now how forces interact with each other. The first law tells us what motion is. Motion is motion in a straight line at a constant speed or rest. And it does not change unless a force is applied. The second law defines forces. Forces are those things that produce accelerations inversely proportional to the mass. The third law tells us how those forces interact. And now I have all the pieces and how to put them together to explain any phenomenon I wish, whether it's Marvin flying across the room, an apple being dropped to the floor, or the moon falling perpetually about the Earth. This, however, has some interesting but non-common sense implications. Let's take my apple here on the table, a little computerized version of that. This apple is at rest, but it's at rest in a gravitational force field that if that table wasn't there, would cause the apple to fall. So what's different about the table being there? Why isn't it moving? After all, there is a constant force of gravity upon it, which is the apple's mass times the acceleration due to gravity. Force equals mass times acceleration. But why isn't it moving? And the reason it's not moving is it's feeling an equal and opposite force from the table. How do I know it's equal and opposite? Because the net force must be zero. If the net force was not zero, if there was a slight residual force up or down, the, the, the apple would be in motion. Because forces always cause accelerations. Therefore, an equal and opposite force is there, and they cancel. The net force is zero, so there's no net motion. The apple neither rises nor falls. It is at rest. So now, what Newton has done is he's defined what you mean by at rest. It's not just that you're in a state of no motion. A state of rest can also apply if in the presence of a force, those forces are equal and opposite. And those forces will be, as long as the forces are equal and opposite, you're fine. And in fact, a more subtle point, as we'll see in gravity, is forces are always equal and opposite, even when things are in motion, because the notion of motion is a bit more subtle than you might have guessed. So where does this leave us? Newton's laws provide a complete quantitative description of the motions of objects. You can write the formulae down mathematically. You can solve the problem. You can predict the motions with exquisite accuracy. 
they have a number of advantages. They are really simple and they're easy, easy to state either in words as we've done or if you take a physics and calculus class you can write them down in terms of mathematics. It's actually very straightforward to do. They also have a, a new application. They are universal physical laws. They apply to everything both in the heavens and on the earth. This is a very un-Aristotelian idea, but it's absolutely essential to just about everything we're going to do. Because I'm going to develop these rules, the Newton's laws, here on Earth and understand their implications. But when I turn my telescope to the sky, I'm going to assert that the same rules apply up there. Not just assert, I can test whether that's true by seeing whether I can accurately predict the future behavior of physical systems in space by applying Newton's laws. And in every circumstance where we have done that, Newton's laws have succeeded. And where they have failed, it has been necessary to show that Newton's laws needed a slight modification. That modification came in the early 20th century due to the work of a man named Albert Einstein. Furthermore, there's an even more important aspects of these, which is often overlooked. These are unifying laws. They take a vast array of phenomenon and explain all the motion with the same self-consistent set of rules. So I don't need a set of rules to govern the planets, a different set of rules to talk about how apples fall, a different set of rules for how you throw rocks, a different set of rules for how a truck moves down the road. Those are all expressions of the same underlying fundamental three laws of motion. And they're all expressible mathematically. But that mathematics is difficult. And this is where Newton's other achievement comes into play. If I really want to state the laws mathematically in their full form, I need a new mathematical language to do this. And that mathematical language is the calculus. Now, how many of you have taken or are taking calculus? OK, most of the hands go up in the room. How many of you knew it was invented by Isaac Newton before today? A few people have probably heard that. It was also invented by a guy named Leibniz in Germany. Newton and Leibniz argued for the rest of their lives about who actually got credit for it. But what is the calculus other than hard math? Calculus is something very special. What calculus is, calculus is the mathematics of change. Algebra, geometry. Uh, geometry is, has been practiced since the time of the Babylonians and the Egyptians, quantified by the, by the Greeks, Euclid, and so forth into an axiomatic system of rules. But geometry is static. A triangle set on the paper is a triangle set upon the paper, and its rules are easily expressed. But it doesn't do anything but sit on the paper. Algebra is developed by the Arabs during the Middle Ages and spread to, to Europe. It's also static. It simply gives the relationships among numbers. But it does not itself move. The problem of applying geometry and algebra to the motions of the heavens, which is what people from Aristotle onwards were trying to do, was that geometry is a static language and they were trying to use it to describe things that are in motion. What Newton and Leibniz and others recognized is that we needed a mathematics of change. We needed a way to express the fact that the velocity of a moving object is changing with time. We needed this notion of change of direction mathematically. What calculus really does, why Newton invented it, is calculus is what sets geometry into motion. It picks it up off the page, it sets it in the sky, and sets it to moving. And to describe that mathematically, all the differentials and the integrals are all pieces of it. A curious fact of history, the Greeks almost had calculus. We've actually discovered a work, 
found just a few years ago by Archimedes from Archimedes' works. It was found hiding underneath a 10th century Byzantine prayer book, but when people looked at it in infrared light, found there was a second set of writing turned at right angles with diagrams. When the computer was used to strip away the 10th century prayer book, what they found was the near complete copy of Archimedes' works. And what he had in there was a way of computing the shapes of curves and areas underneath it. He was within a millimeter of the differential and integral calculus. What would have happened to the world if we'd had differential integral calculus 2,000 years ago instead of in the 18th century? It provides the main framework for exploring motion and setting the world into motion. So we can now take our mathematics, we can apply it to the sky, we can apply it to an apple, and we can set them all in motion. And we're going to be looking at the implications of that for gravity beginning on Monday.